Welcome to the Political Economy Forums podcast. I'm Morgan Wack, PhD student and co-producer of this podcast. On today's episode, I'll be speaking with Dennis Young, PhD student in political science here at the University of Washington, about his work researching the economics, politics, and history of U.S. detention centers. Welcome, Dennis. Hi, thanks, Morgan. Thanks for having me. Of course. Today, we'll be focusing on a discussion of your work related to U.S. detention centers, which was the topic of your MA research. To start off, can you give us a brief overview of how you came to be involved in researching U.S. detention centers? Yeah, for sure. Um, So I kind of first started getting really interested in immigration and immigrant detention kind of from some some personal family experience. So my father is an immigrant to the U.S. And, you know, kind of growing up, uh, I was always you know, wondering like, okay, what, what's the big deal? Like my dad's kind of had it pretty easy. Uh, and it's only kind of in later years that I've realized, you know, my dad is a white immigrant from England. So he definitely has sort of like benefited from the immigration system in ways that the, the majority of folks who are coming to the U.S. today just don't. And, you know, I, I think a lot about the fact that, you know, if my dad had been from Mexico or Nicaragua, anywhere like that, my life story could have turned out very differently. So kind of coming into it, I have always been thinking about immigration kind of from like, okay, I know what the the privileged perspective looks like. And if you are the right kind of immigrant, things kind of go pretty well for you generally. And so then there's this question of, okay, so if that's what's going on, then why are there all these people in immigrant detention centers? How can we explain sort of these um, really horrific injustices that are being inflicted upon people who are you know, coming here seeking economic opportunity or refuge from something in their home country or to be reunited with their family. So that was kind of the initial interest. And then when I moved to Seattle a few years back, I got involved with a local resistance organization, a group that was sort of devoted to bringing attention to the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma, which has now been renamed to the Northwest Ice Processing Center which is an interesting and kind of like important thing to note is that one of the biggest ways that detention operates is undercover, right? Northwest Ice Processing Center kind of makes it sound very banal, makes it sound like, you know, it's, oh, they're just doing papers. They're just like filing stuff, making sure that everything is okay. When in fact, you know, there are 1600 people who are there who are not being fed adequately, not being housed adequately and are under threat of deportation pretty much at any moment. So but if you didn't big, know better, you'd think they were just doing refrigeration. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. You'd be like, okay, there's some ice cubes going through the, going through the trays, putting them all on those Excel spreadsheets. And so one of the biggest things that, um, so the group that I was working with is called uh, La Resistencia. They're an immigrant run and organized group devoted to first and foremost, bringing attention to the fact that these detention centers not only exist, but are like a huge problem that affects the people inside them, as well as huge communities of undocumented folks and their families who may be of mixed status. So there may be folks who are citizens, there may be folks who have green cards, but have relatives that are undocumented and end up in detention centers. And so from that kind of work with them, it snowballed into this broader discussion of what is even really happening in the immigration detention system in the U.S. today. Great. Yeah. And we'll make sure to put a link to all the organizations that you mentioned in in the show notes. I just want to branch off a couple of things you said there. I know the current administration where we're currently speaking as votes are being tallied, the 2020 presidential election, 2016 presidential election was sort of defined by immigration. I think with the wall, a lot of these narratives and issues around immigration detainees but it wasn't always the case that immigration was an issue of detention and this criminal aspect of of immigration. So can you talk us through how it came to be defined in the way it is today, the way we see it as this very controversial central issue in American politics? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think in a lot of ways, that's a question that's sort of at the heart of a lot of immigrant detention research today. And I think there are a number of factors that a lot of folks have pointed out, uh, including sort of the work that I've been doing. So to start, I think first and foremost, right, is U.S. immigration law. And I don't think uh, for folks who are pretty familiar with immigration, this may not necessarily be a new argument, but immigration law in the U.S. kind of used to be relatively more open in the sense that like, you know, you could come here, but you're just going to be treated like garbage if you're brown or if you're not the right type of European immigrant. And that was kind of the system for a really long time. And then in 1882, U.S. puts into place the Chinese Immigrant Exclusion Acts, which is sort of the first explicitly racial barring of people on it for immigration. 
Um, and over time, these laws sort of vent, um, go through a lot of different processes and evolve, going from sort of like very openly restrictionist to uh, in 1924 with the Johnson-Reed Act, the creation of the national origins quotas, which set a limit on the number of immigrants that you could have coming from each different country with sort of the priorities being for uh, immigrants from North and Western Europe. So your, your English immigrants, your German immigrants, your French immigrants are prioritized while your Italian immigrants are sort of still vilified. But over time, that, that those, those, those meanings and who is included in kind of dominant understandings of who can be American shifts pretty dramatically. And eventually it kind of, and so a lot of authors, uh, so for instance, May Nye wrote a really compelling argument suggesting that one of the most important functions of immigration enforcement has been to sort of shore up the boundaries of who can be American and who can be considered white. And so she documents this through sort of a series of court cases in which the Supreme Court was actually like literally ruling on, was this person white or not? And so the, it's, a, been a, it's like a very complex politics of figuring out whether or not someone is eligible for residency in the U.S. And this was kind of the system, right? For a really long time, the system was set up to, to ask this question of who can even really get in in the first place. But in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, we start seeing this major turn in which the law begins to turn its focus not just to keeping people out, but also to policing the interior, of the, the country, sort of shoring up the internal borders. And that's motivated by kind of a combination of economic and racial crises. And I think one of the sort of pivotal moments that uh, a lot of scholars, including myself, point to as a, a major transition is the Marielle boat lift in 1980. So 1980, you've got Fidel Castro's Cuba, Ronald Reagan's just come into power, and the U.S. is starting to drastically roll back a lot of its social welfare policies. We're seeing this major turn towards the more free market state that we're more familiar with today, right? The massive rollback of welfare benefits and the kind of hardening of the traditional, the now traditional Democrat-Republican divide. At this time, 125,000 Cubans are fleeing from Castro's regime and they come over to Florida in this massive boat lift. Um, and what's interesting or particularly noteworthy about this is that these folks are very different from the Cuban refugees that the U.S. had been willing to accept earlier. So Cuban refugees prior to this, this Mariel Boatlift moment were predominantly upper class. They were supporters of capitalism. So they were fleeing Fidel Castro's regime in Cuba because they were worried about losing their wealth, their generational power uh, in Cuba under the, the Castro regime. And they're mostly light-skinned, um, they are mostly uh, not occupying criminal status. And the U.S. welcomes them with open arms in part because of those, you know, those geopolitical Cold War considerations, right? If you've got people running away from communism and you accept them into your state, looks really good in the international press. Um, by contrast, the folks involved in the Marielle boat lift tend to be predominantly uh, much darker skinned, much poorer. Many of them were incarcerated, not under Castro, but prior to Castro. So when uh, Cuba was still not communist. Um, and many of them are un um, disabled. Many of them are queer. And so it's just a very different sort of makeup uh, than previous realms of refugees. And to top it all off, right, it is a much bigger flow than almost has ever been seen because 125,000 kind of all in one go mm -hmm. is just a lot, <laughs> a lot bigger of a wave than, uh, than previously. It reminds me of the recent news about the caravans coming from Central America, sort of, obviously different context, but the same type of image of many people coming at once to kind of storm the borders. Yeah, and I think that's exactly the rhetoric that, um, that was used. Like, it's, it's the exact same rhetoric. We see this, this mirroring where um, the flood is like a really common mm -hmm. narrative, I think, in talking about immigration politics. And so Reagan's response is kind of like, we can't possibly interdict all of these people at sea where previously, uh, you know, the Coast Guard would have intercepted and turned back people. When you've got just that sort of sheer number, the Coast Guard can't keep up anymore. So Reagan and the Reagan administration kind of look at this problem and they say, what do we do with all of these people that are here? And within the next like kind of few years, uh, they authorize the construction of the first 
massive detention facilities in uh, Georgia. From there, it begins to develop where there is now this ongoing turn towards the creation of laws that are designed to address problems of swelling ranks of undocumented immigrants within the United States. So it's now turning from this exterior facing to this policing, police-oriented apparatus within the United States. And I, I really always cite like 1980 as a really pivotal moment because the moment that the federal government gets involved and starts authorizing funding for detention centers, it starts to snowball really quickly because quickly what the federal government realizes is that holding people indefinitely is expensive. And it's kind of the same problem that you know folks have faced in the prison industrial co complex as well, right? Is that prisons are expensive to maintain. And so outsourcing that labor to private contractors who can do it for much cheaper, who make it their business to do that is a really affordable way to designate this sort of like sovereign function of punishment, this sovereign function of containment and then expulsion. And so again, that's why I say it's like this very curious mixture of economic and racial factors. Like I think that this sort of global geopolitics and global political economy is really important to pay, important to pay attention to because at a moment when the US government is trying to slash costs. They're also running like the war on drugs. They're running sort of all of the Reaganite programs that roll back social welfare and channeling a lot of that funding into the construction of these new programs, these new carceral programs specifically. Yeah. So yeah. before we get into the more contemporary post 9-11 policy changes, can you give us a brief overview of how influential and large these private companies have become. I know you cite that nearly 72% of detainees in the U.S. are currently held in private detention centers, uh, but could you just give us an overview of how profitable these organizations are, these companies are, and what their influence is like in Washington? Yeah. There, so there's a couple things that are, are important to note. So in, in the more modern era, right, it's really post 9-11 that private prison corporations become so involved in detention. Like prior to 9-11, the sort of scale of detention is growing in worrisome ways, but is not necessarily at the level that it's at today. So pre and post 9-11 is really like a watershed moment in, in immigrant detention history. So for instance, uh, currently the, the Department of Homeland Security's budget in the, the, the year of 2019 was uh, around $48 billion in discretionary funding, right? Which uh, is, is huge. That's enormous. That's so much money. So within that, that set of money, right? The Immigration and Customs Enforcement Office, ICE, receives approximately, and again, like these numbers are a little fuzzy because there are also some types of sort of discretionary administrations that Congress does, but it's, it, it totals around $4 billion, right? So of this, this massive Homeland Security budget, ICE is getting a pretty, pretty sizable chunk of the pie. The vast majority of which is used for detention beds. So of that approximately $4 million that they received, uh, $2.8 billion is for uh, detention beds, right? So when I say detention beds, that has like a pretty specific meaning in, mm -hmm. uh, in the detention context, right? So the U.S. has a, a rule that a lot of folks don't know about, which is called the detention bed mandate. And the detention bed mandate means that there are a certain number of beds that the U.S. requires to be, depending on how you interpret it legally, either occupied or available for occupation on any given day. And that number currently stands at about 52,000. Now, 52,000 may not sound like all that much, especially given uh, that the fact that, you know, the U.S. currently incarcerates 2 million people in um, mainstream prisons and jails. But what's unique about immigration detention centers is that people are always sort of cycling in and out of them because of, right, people get deported. People um, are transferred between detention centers. And also that, that, that quota, that 52,000, is the minimum. That is the floor of how many people can be in detention at any given moment. So estimates from Syracuse's track clearinghouse suggest that as many as like 2.5 million immigrants go through detention in the course of a year, right? And some, many of them are released, many of them are deported, um, but you know, folks can stay in detention for incredibly long periods of time. Um, the longest that I've heard is eight years. So eight years in a detention center in rural Georgia and so what's important about that, that $2.8 billion for detention beds is that 
again, 70, that number you just cited, Morgan, 72% of that money is contracts with groups, uh, with private prison corporations, notably the Geo Group and Core Civic, right? Who are two just like absolutely massive private prison corporations. And 25% of their revenue, yearly revenue, uh, as they reported in 2019, 2020, comes from these detention contracts, which if you think about sort of like thinking about the numbers, right? Imagining, you know, you've got 2 million people incarcerated at any point. The fact that 52,000 detention beds makes up 25% of these corporations' revenue is kind of bananas, right? Their per person profit margins are ridiculous. And that's only intensified under the Trump regime, right? Um, CoreCivic and Geo both recorded record profits uh, under the Trump administration, shattering their previous records. Um, like these, these corporations are truly making an inordinate amount of money. And a huge part of that trick, uh, I guess this is maybe preempting sort of your next question, but a huge part of that trick is they basically don't pay for labor, right? Because they make the detainees do most of the labor of actually maintaining the detention facilities. And under U.S. statutory law, um, based on precedent set in 1992 in the INS versus Alvarado decision, uh, they can legally pay detainees $1 per day for their labor. And so if you're paying, you know, you've got, say, 10,000 detainees doing the labor, you pay 10,000 bucks a day max ever. Uh, and the rest of that is pure profit. And it's not just that, right? I, I found this part very interesting from, from kind of an economic perspective. You can talk about why it's $1, how this ties into the larger crimmigration framework that you discuss. But I'm interested in sort of the nickel and diming that they do on the inside as well, where they have to pay for a toothpaste, they have to pay for food and anything beyond the funding given to them um, by the state. And I think that there is an interesting tie in here to kind of the economies of scale arguments in, in other industries. There's obvious connection between Washington and the Trump administration specifically and ICE and these organizations, these companies on the front lines who have such immense contracts and are making so much profit that I find it very difficult to believe that they could not be bid down if it was a competitive process. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how lobbying plays into this and how these connections have become so intertwined. That's a great question. And so there's a lot of data out there. Um, and so in, in kind of a future project, one, one thing that I'm looking at is this question of how much influence can uh, private prison money really buy in terms of securing ICE contracts? Right now, there's sort of like correlative data suggesting that there are strong links between, um, you know, uh, Congress, congressional representatives receiving lobbying funds from the Geo Group or from Core Civic, and the amount of money from ICE that comes into their district. Um, now, there is an ongoing empirical question about how much that relates to like the presence of immigration enforcement. But what we learn is that um, these private prison corporations, notably GEO and CoreCivic, uh, whose lobbying expenditures like far outstrip uh, any other private prison corporation, they're getting the biggest slice of the pie from ICE sort of for that reason, right? They are well-known contractors who will perform that labor at a very low price and who will then use their influence to spend money to make sure that sort of they are getting their share of the pork. They're making sure that discretionary spending is being allocated to their districts um, in the form of, you know, more ICE contracts, more detention beds. And so there's this really important politics around where do detention centers actually get built? Um, mm. And as, as, as you're trying to, you know, get a, get a detention center built, right, there is an ongoing contestation sort of at the level of state versus federal, right? Because in California, for example, the governor said, and uh, the, the people generally agreed that um, we should not have private prisons running detention centers in the state of California. And the federal government was kind of like, mm, that's cute. You know, um, and very few of the California detention center facilities, which are the largest and have sort of the highest reputation for being dangerous for detainees, continue to operate at these huge profit margins in spite of what the, the governor is doing. And I think in a large part, that's because of the, the lobbying efforts of GeoGroup and CoreCivic, which insulates them 
from a lot of these sort of legal uh, challenges that they might face otherwise. So when I think about what they're spending, what they're really not, they're not necessarily trying to spend money to, to buy influence per se. It's more of a wealth defense tactic, right? It's, it's kind of like, you know, when billionaires lobby to try to keep the tax codes favorable to their offshore uh, havens, it's kind of, it's operating in that same type of space where they're working to see, okay, what sort of like things can we do to maximize our profit margins of course, within, within have, these yeah. contexts? When you have such a big, I mean, it seems like some sort of, not, not necessarily a monopoly, there are multiple competitors, but they're not necessarily at odds with one another in the marketplace. And when you have such a large stake and there are so few startup competitors, a lot of the marginal earnings are going to go towards lobbying in any industry. It's a it's just worrying that the incentives are obviously aligned to keep people in these situations that are horrible for America's image abroad and obviously against many different human rights. So I think this ties in well to your argument about the legal system and how people have tried to defend individual detainees and detainees writ large from these private corporations and separating prison system from the immigration system. And so what I gained from your paper, that the, the $1 a day price comes from the fact that they're being treated as if they were prisoners. Yeah. Um, I don't want to like kind of bore the podcast listeners with too much of the technical yeah. legal details, but one of the most important things that they do is that detainees occupy this really ambiguous space between like Basically, in legal doctrine, the state will treat them as prisoners when it's convenient and immigrants when it's convenient. They basically will use sort of like civil law whenever it works in their best interest and criminal law whenever it works in their best interest because um, sort of based on the set of precedents that exist in the U.S., it's reasonable that they could fall under either category. And so that actually gives, um, you know, the punitive systems tremendous leverage in terms of like what codes do they want to apply in what instances. Um, and that's like one of the kind of scariest things about it is because they occupy this very like liminal legal status, um, immigrant detainees end up sort of being actually afforded less rights than uh, a lot of prisoners are. So for instance, like even the right to counsel is not guaranteed. Yeah. In your paper, you mentioned that you can't actually speak with a lot of these detainees because it costs them money. They have to pay on their end to speak with anyone on the outside. So this is another way that they limit contact and limit the ability of these detainees to engage in collective action. So we can switch to that here a little bit. I think one of the most interesting aspects of your argument is that the defense of a lot of these detainees has actually played into the hand of those defining detainees and criminals. Can you talk us through the logic of what you believe, at least in this paper, I know you have since said that you have spoken with lawyers and more legal systems and you might have to update this slightly, but I'm curious if you could talk us through the logic of why defending individual detainees, why a lack of collective action allows some detainees to gain representation and possibly a better future, but it leaves the system at large kind of worse off or at least in the same rut that it was in previously. Yeah, so, th so this is a great question. Um, and I think one of the things that's really important to pay attention to is I'll, I'll maybe just highlight that. So there's there's a very interesting set of cases out right now against against the GEO group and against CoreCivic, which are challenging that, that $1 per day precedent, right? That their, their whole shtick is to challenge forced labor in detention centers. And they're approaching it on a couple of different grounds. One is on the ground that... Um, you know, it, it violates sort of like fair labor standards and the treatment of laborers. Um, although there's also a second related argument, which suggests that uh, GEO and CoreCivic may be engaging in trafficking, which has actually, interestingly enough, the trafficking argument has gained more traction in the courts than the forced labor argument, which is kind of interesting in the sense that like, um, to me, it's actually like a much easier forced labor case, but the precedent is set up such that the trafficking case is actually more likely to go through, which is, which is very odd. But so in each of these cases, they're filing class action lawsuits um, on behalf of all detainees who've had sort of their labor uh, expropriated. But the, the catch for me is, is sort of twofold. One is that um, in these lawsuits, they really focus on GEO and Core Civic as sort of like lone bad actors without necessarily challenging the fact that, you know, ICE is the one that is supplying them with contracts. 
that Palantir and Amazon and Microsoft are providing the technology that enables them to maintain these facilities and capture people in the first place. That there are countless corporations involved in supplying the marked up toothpaste, the marked up dental floss. You know, it, it's $8 for a tube of toothpaste at uh, the Northwest Ice Processing Center. And so these lawsuits are powerful and they're an important challenge in the sense that uh, they, they have the potential to undermine this sort of like forced labor standard. But I think the fear, at least on my end, and I think on the end of a lot of uh, other folks is what happens if then ICE is just kind of like, okay, I guess we can't do private contractors anymore. It won't be as lucrative, but we'll still like keep doing the same thing. We're just gonna cut Geo and CoreCivic out as the bad actors. Um, so the concern, so one concern is sort of that it isolates where the problem is. The second concern for me is that it's really couched in this logic of um, immigrants are not criminals. And I think the reason that I struggle with this logic, and I think it's, it's important to recognize, right, that the sorts of arguments that attorneys can make are very much constrained. Like they're not operating under the ability to say whatever they want. They, they have to be trying to make a case before a judge. And that fundamentally limits what types of arguments you can make. But to me, the danger of uh, this immigrants are not criminals framework is, first of all, that doesn't cover about 40% of detainees, right? So even if we say, you know, all immigrants who do not have a criminal record should be freed, that would be dope. I would love to see, you know, 60% of uh, folks who are currently detained to be let go. But what about those folks who are still there? You know, what about those folks who are still there after that, who are left in these conditions that no one should be subjected to? The other part of that that's important, though, is that the criminalization laws that we've been talking about, these sort of turn towards, uh, towards interior immigration enforcement, has incentivized uh, law officers and ICE, um, both financially and politically, to find ways to make people criminal, even if they haven't necessarily done anything, right? Because there's, there's a saying in the sort of detention and deportation literature, right? That a routine traffic stop can lead to a deportation. And the evidence suggests that that's really true, right? Um, racial profiling um, has been used pretty commonly to stop um, Latino um, folks at a, at a much higher rate than almost any other racial group, particularly in places like Arizona, California. Um, and so then what happens when you, if you're undocumented and say like your taillight is out, or maybe you had two beers before you left the bar and then you drove home and then you get pulled over by law enforcement, they run who you are, they check out all of your, your, um, your data basically, because they have that thanks to Palantir and Microsoft. They know exactly who you are after about five minutes. Um, and they find that you know you are undocumented and you're driving with two beers in your system. Suddenly they have grounds for a DUI and they have grounds for sending you to a detention center. So a lot of folks will spend time in like you know a county correction facility before then being ported over to, uh, to a detention center. And so the problem with this immigrants are not criminals logic is that it really kind of like separates out the fact that the prison complex and the immigrant detention complex are deeply, deeply intertwined economic systems. You know, people go back and forth between the two. And to be honest, like, you know, that's Geo Group and Core Civic's ideal scenario because then they can double dip. They're making profit off of them at both ends as detainees and as prisoners. And so... Uh, it's not, I want to be clear, right? I think these forced labor lawsuits are really creative. They're really brilliant. They're an innovative way to challenge um, a truly monumental system. And I think that's the big thing that I've learned in my takeaways from lawyers is that lawyers are like, yeah, we're not counting on these to solve the problem. What we're expecting is that this is going to also have to be backed up by other forms of action. This is another way to chip away at the financial incentives that, um, help prop up the system. And if we can get this win, then that sets us up for other stuff. It gives us a little more wiggle room to work with. So I think the lawyers are just as conscious of, the, of these things that are happening. Um, but I think the danger actually comes more from sort of the, your everyday public person who doesn't really understand the nuances of the detention system and sees these uh, lawsuits and is like, oh, okay, great. Once they win those lawsuits, fight's over, detention solved. 
um, when in fact, like there's a much bigger system underneath it. So if you're talking about getting public buy-in, getting people kind of like on board, um, they need to understand much more of how the system as a whole works. And if they're just reading these legal decisions or they're just hearing about these cases in the news, um, there's, there's a lot of danger in terms of like sapping movement energy, sapping the ability to contest on other terrain as well as just that, that legal challenge. Great, yeah. So let's focus on that second argument here really quickly. I want to get the point across because this is a you know political economy forum podcast, just on the logic of the collective action here, because you talk a bit about, so some of these larger cases that are indeed trying to broach the system at the roots, these foundations, a lot of these individual cases and individual lawyers, the incentive, if I'm not wrong, is for them to use the fact that their individual client may not be a criminal. So if you're representing someone and you can say, look, my client should not be deported. They have a clean record. They should be able to remain. They have a family here in the United States. While this is probably a very strong argument for that individual person, this more is entrenches this system that separates criminals from detainees and kind of reinforces the fact that detainees should be treated separately and these systems are valid in and of themselves. That's kind of what I got out of your paper. And that's where I think your idea about hunger strikes and these larger collective action issues kind of ties in from this economic side. So can you talk about that just briefly? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess uh, it's, it's interesting that you frame it as a collective action problem, right? Because I think that's actually a really great uh, frame that maybe I hadn't thought to use before. Uh, but it really is, right? Because each individual has the incentive to try to fight their personal case on whatever grounds make sense. And fostering the kind of like incentives to get people together to collectively challenge the regime is hard. It's really hard when you're in a situation in which you are so deeply dependent on, you know, sort of the, the goodwill of the United States in that regard. And so what's really interesting about these sort of hunger strikes, these labor strikes, there's so many incentives for people to defect. There's so many incentives for people to break their hunger strike, to not follow through on the types of collective action that could lead to much better outcomes, but they don't defect. I think that's the part to me that is particularly interesting and why I think it's important is that there is something that these folks who are detained, who are in like quite possibly one of the worst circumstances that you can be in as a human being, they still see the value or they think that there is something that is worth fighting for beyond their individual sake and that working together they think is actually more in their collective interest than winning their individual case. And so that's why a lot of folks will turn to hunger strikes. Now, I think there are sort of a couple caveats that I will issue to that. Um, one is that even though there are incentives to defect from a, from a collective action to break the hunger strike, they are also a lot of folks who are in detention centers don't really see that they have an alternative. Um, and the reason that I'm, I'm making that case is because um, a lot of these folks just don't have the ability to get an attorney, to get the basic support that they need to actually fight their case. And so even though like, you know, maybe they could get better food or they could get better treatment within the facility, they could not be hungry. Um, in terms of their individual liberation, it's actually very much tied to the collective denial of these outside resources in the form of attorneys, in the form of call cards so they can talk to their loved ones at home, um, all of these things. I, and I, but the second thing I think is that there is a really sort of, uh, and this is maybe a little less political economy, but there is very much a sort of radical sense of solidarity within the detention centers. And I think that, uh, you know, as a, as a theoretical mechanism to specify why that is, uh, that probably is an open empirical question, but my, my gut instinct sort of from all the work that I've been doing is that these people see the system as a system, right? And they, and many of them, you know, reading statements from detainees are like very aware of the fact that it's not enough for one person to win their case. It, it requires a, an overturn of the system. 
And I think that also comes from the fact that, you know, uh, these folks are kept together in very close proximity. They're in a very similar situation. And so many of them develop like really strong ties within the detention center. And I think that's also part of why it's very hard to break hunger strikes for ICE and for GEO is that like these people care about each other in a fundamental way. Um, and that care, that, that ethic uh, combined with sort of this real deep awareness of how the ICE system works as a system um, really fosters people working collectively in a situation where maybe you wouldn't expect them to sort of based on kind of your, your standard um, collective action problem logic. Absolutely. And I just to, to bring in the, the political uh, economy side once more, this is also a, a, what we'd call repeated game, right? Once you win a single case, it's not like you're suddenly a citizen of the United States. More likely, your family members can still be deported. You're still at risk of deportation if mm -hmm. you are out with two drinks in your system. And so it is not a you know win and go home type situation. These are systems that continually threaten a way of life for many, many people that are interconnected um, with high information, high contextual um, circumstances. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's also another aspect of this I find really interesting. Let's get at this, this hunger strike aspect. You present it as an alternative to these legal challenges, and perhaps now you're thinking of it more as a kind of an addendum to these legal challenges, and you can talk us through that. Um, but I'm interested in kind of how you came about to studying these hunger strikes and how common they are, and just to kind of talk us through maybe for listeners who haven't necessarily followed these things in the news. Yeah, so that's that's a really important question as well, because, you know, um, returning to a point we were talking about earlier, right, GEO and ICE have a super vested interest in making sure that hunger strikes don't get out, right? Like, they work so actively to suppress hunger strikes, because what is sort of more threatening to your bottom line than people finding out that you are committing human rights abuses, within your, your facilities, that there's a real fear around that. And so I think that's part of the leverage of a hunger strike is just that fact that like, you know, if this gets out, it can have some really negative repercussions for a for-profit corporation. Um, and so I think a lot of these detainees have recognized that they have leverage in that regard. Um, and so the, the corollary part is also that sort of the practice of doing it also means that they stop doing the labor for a few days. That labor that, again, is just absolutely essential to maintaining the spaces of detention. So if you have this power, right, where you recognize that the corporation that is housing you uh, and abusing you relies on your labor for their profit margins, suddenly you're like, okay, if we can get everybody in on this, which uh, sort of we've suggested earlier why they can, um, we can really put a dent in their profit margins. And I think there's still some empirical analysis to be done on how much it, like a labor or a hunger strike costs GEO or CoreCivic. Um, but sort of my preliminary guess is quite a bit uh, I, because they have to bring in, like they have to deal with the hunger strike, which often involves, you know, like paying guards overtime um, or, you know, um, responding to their demands, which might be expensive, right? If they demand better food, then you have to provide better food, which is, which is a cost. You, you might have to, you know, like deal with the, the fallout if it comes out that you suppressed a strike really aggressively, which is quite common as well. And they have uh, to deal with, I'm sure, the contract obligations that they have with these workers and private companies elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, like if it gets out and there's a legal challenge, then they have to pay legal fees pay their army of attorneys to kind of continue to try to keep the system running as efficiently as possible. So they have a lot of, a lot of power as, as uh, detainees, as laborers um, that they've been willing to exercise, right? And I think the thing that has been particularly interesting to me has been, there is a sort of spillover effect to borrow from the social movement literature where uh, when detainees find out that other detainees are on strike, that often prompts them to go on strike. Um, and so, for instance, in 2020, there have been more strikes in detention centers than in any previous year. Uh, so this year, there have been, um, that, I, that I know of, there have been 14 recorded hunger and labor strikes. Uh, that was as of October 19th. So that number could possibly have changed. There may be another one that has happened or is happening that I'm not aware of. So they have been growing in 
frequency and duration, I would say. And I think that's important to pay attention to, right? Is the longer the strike goes on, uh, the more challenging it is to, you know, maintain the collective action, but the bigger the cost is to the GEO group and to CoreCivic and in turn to ICE. So um, as, as a tool of challenging them, I, I want to be careful, right? Because advocating for something like that is not necessarily something that I want to do because these people are literally putting their lives on the line to, to, to make these changes. And that's scary. And I don't like that we live in a world where they have to do that. But I think at the same time, if we see these strikes and we notice that these strikes are going on, that should incentivize people to listen to what these folks are saying, to take collective action in sort of similar ways that they're doing, to look for those economic pressure points, um, look for those uh, levers that they have uh, where, wherever possible. And I think that the, what's hard is that for folks on the outside, there aren't as many levers. So the question then becomes, are there ways to prevent detainees from getting hurt when they go on these types of hunger strikes? What could be done to support folks who are detained while they're taking these very risky actions? Um, and I think that's where like attorney work and legal work can be really, really valuable is because these forced labor lawsuits are backing up those claims that they're making in the labor strikes. And then there's also been a series of litigation around um, pushing back on ICE's ability to just like hurt detainees when they go on strike. Uh, there've been a, a few really interesting cases pushing for like first amendment liberties, um, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly within detention centers. Uh, and those cases could have some really interesting ways that they could support the, this community as well. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I think you're right in saying this is obviously a very complex issue, but it doesn't seem like there are a lot of other options for these detainees on the inside. This is really one of the only forms of collection of action that they can take in that they are limited in contact with the legal system, with their own families, and the only you know, support they have are these other detainees. And so it makes a lot of sense from an instrumentalist point of view that this would be something we see as a method of disruption, both in an economic sense and a social sense. Um, yeah, totally. I don't know if you wanna, do you wanna talk us through maybe one particular strike? I know you write about a couple different examples just so we can get a sense of what these look like and then we'll kind of close up a bit and have some final words. Yeah, so I think one of the most, the most interesting ones uh, happens back in 2014. And, and this is a really interesting one to me because it is the moment at which I first noticed that people were sort of engaging this policy spillover, right? Where detainees see other detainees striking and mobilize to do the same thing. Um, but also because it is a moment in which sort of like community activists also got really involved in um, looking for those sort of economic pressure points. So what happens in 2014 is Laura Sistencia, the group that I mentioned earlier, um, you know, finds out about a deportation flight that is gonna be leaving that afternoon. And they get together and take a very, very risky form of collective action, which is to block the bus from leaving to get to the airfield with their bodies. And they say, okay, if you want to deport these people, you are literally going to have to kill us. And unsurprisingly, um, the GEO bus driver backs down. What then happens, though, is then the detainees see that this has happened, right? Because they're in contact with a lot of members of La Resistencia. A lot of the, the folks who are in La Resistencia are sort of drawn from family members of folks who are in the Northwest Ice Processing Center or folks who have been in the Northwest Ice Processing Center or folks who have been targeted by ICE to end up in, in there. And the detainees see this and they, and this is all uh, public, like public on La Resistencia's website. Uh, so they have a really great hunger strikers handbook that um, provides kind of this, this background history. Um, but basically what then happened is like all of the hunger strikers saw what was happening and that kind of provided the, the impetus for them to get together and actually launch a hunger strike. So they launched a two week hunger strike and just like refused to do work, refused to eat. And folks in Texas, folks in Louisiana find out about these hunger strikes and join in. They also hop on 
and start uh, protesting at their facilities. And the result is surprisingly successful. Um, partially maybe because this is the, one of the first like really organized hunger strikes, really disciplined hunger strikes. But um, the GEO group makes a number of changes to their, their policies. Um, their, they make it a lot easier for them to make calls to the outside. Um, the conditions are at least temporarily alleviated. The catch, of course, being right, that there's always sort of this back and forth, right? There's the contestation where they push it forward a little bit and then Geo rolls back something else. And then they push it forward a little bit and then something else get, gets rolled back. Sort of the ongoing cycle of, uh, of the social movement struggle is that, that back and forth. But um, in, this, in this strike, it also um, really brought awareness, I think, in, in the, the greater Washington area to the fact that the, the Northwest Ice Processing Center even existed. Suddenly people are paying attention. Suddenly people are checking their financial records. They're checking their information. Uh, and I think in a lot of ways that led to the creation of um, the UW Center for Human Rights Project, which has been looking at um, you know, the deportation flights, the deportation machine, and a number of publications, a number of public uh, information aspects came out of that particular hunger strike. It also then led to um, the one of the earliest of the forced action litigation, uh, forced labor class action litigations, um, Nawazur versus the GEO group. And in turn, later, uh, Attorney General Bob Ferguson filing his lawsuit against the GEO group in Tacoma. So in terms of like sort of the influence of that strike, not only did they make material gains, but then they also disrupted the, the, the economics of the detention machine and got the state of Washington involved in a way that it hadn't been before. And this, this still goes back to this sort of like real tension between the federal level and the state level government where Washington and Washington DC have been really kind of feuding over what's happening in Washington state. Um, and those economics are very much kind of contested. But I think that strike is really important to point to because it shows that the, the goods, uh, first of all, the direct action gets the goods, right? Um, both literally and, uh, and more figuratively in the form of both material benefits for detainees and media awareness of what's happening in Tacoma. So that's one that I like to highlight for that reason. Yeah, yeah and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, we, we haven't talked as much about how much these companies and the detention system has grown since 9-11. I know people can probably infer it's essentially the answer is quite a lot. Uh, but the, these types of actions do play off that asymmetry. The more political and economic capital that these companies have, the more likely these types of actions, these types of information-based and communication-based actions will have an impact in drawing attention to this asymmetry. I think it's fascinating and it's, it's unsurprising it's disappointing that it has to be this way, but it's unsurprising that that has become such a popular tactic of detainees. We're speaking here on, on November 6th. So the, the election hasn't been called. It seems likely that Biden and, and Kamala Harris will win. Um, but do you expect there to be kind of a drastic change in policy if the Biden administration comes to power? That's a tough, that's a tough question, I think, in a lot of ways. So the, the reason that it's a tough question for me is because the detention machinery grew at a pretty dramatic rate under the Obama administration. And that's not to say that like the Trump administration hasn't made it worse um, because they certainly have dramatically upped ICE's funding, but the sort of extreme prevalence of private prison contracting booms under Obama. And in part because it, it is good economically, right? It, the, the, it's uh from sort of a gross domestic product perspective, from your macroeconomic lens, right? It looks real good uh, for the country because a few key actors are making a crap load of money off of people who are not normally counted in our sort of like gross domestic product figure, mm -hmm. right? They are people who get hidden by that particular metric. And so I think with Joe Biden's election, if that happens, um, it's hard to say because the political terrain is quite different, uh, I think, than it was for Obama. 
um, because there are just a lot more people, thanks, I think, in large part to the work that detained activists have been doing, a lot more people are aware that this problem exists and that it is um, supported by many of the kind of most powerful corporations in the United States. So I don't necessarily think that Joe Biden or Kamala Harris uh, as the heads of the executive branch would dramatically scale down detention. I think they would certainly scale it down somewhat, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, and perhaps increasing, you know, uh, funding for alternatives to detention or um, just like lowering the detention bed mandate. But I have a hard time imagining that they will dramatically scale it down without serious public opinion pressure. I think that um, they are not particularly likely to budge on that issue in part because they're still very much committed to a kind of crime and punishment model of immigration enforcement. And the reason that I'm pretty confident in that is because Joe Biden like was a co-signatory or a personal author on a number of the bills that actually made the construction of the detention regime possible. So the IIRIRA uh, in 1996, Catching that's got Joe's, that's, yeah, oh my gosh, uh, that's got Joe's figures all over it, right? Joe Biden played a pretty crucial role in getting that passed. And that was a piece of legislation that dramatically expanded the uh, number and types of crimes that could make a person eligible for deportation. So when I'm talking about these like traffic stops turning into deportations, Joe Biden has a direct causal link to, to that, that being a, a reality. And so while I think he uh, is not necessarily the same person he was in 1996, uh, I hope that none of us are the same people we were in 1996, um, I'm skeptical that without pressure, he will budge. Yeah, it's a great point. I'm also, I think your kind of logic around, I, I know other people have talked about this as well, but the crimmigration logic that immigrants and criminals are dissociated from one another also plays a role there. Because I could see something happening about maybe some sort of criminal justice reform that excludes detainees or that places them as the other in this situation that are being used to show that they're not weak on crime. They're just promoting a certain type of, of resistance. And so it'll be interesting to see. Hopefully that's not the case and it'll be something more holistic, but that's certainly a worry as well. So just a final two questions here. I'm wondering if you could give us a sense. I know you had talked about this with me briefly before of how this looks outside the United States. So we are focusing specifically on the United States here, but how does detention look elsewhere? Are there any models that we could potentially look to as alternatives or is detention seen relatively similarly, just not at the same extent as in the United States? Yeah. So one of the best resources to look at this is a group called the Global Detention Watch. Um, and they have sort of records on, you know, all of the places that people have um, compiled data on the numbers of detainees. So in terms of sort of an alternative place to look, it's tricky because so many countries around the world have really embraced this fear of immigrants and immigration. If we can think back, uh, I know it kind of seems like a lifetime ago in some ways, but when the Syrian refugee crisis was sort of the, the talk, uh, the main topic of the news, um, a lot of European countries were sort of hardening their borders. They were really uh, trying to make sure that people were not getting in, but even if they got in, then um, they were quickly apprehended and then hopefully deported if everything worked out the way the, the state wanted it to. Um, so I don't necessarily think there are a ton of good models at the moment, um, but there are vast numbers of alternatives to detention programs. Uh, just like, and I think that one of the most important things to note, right, is even if we accept the premise that, um, you know, states have the right to decide membership. Um, let's 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 work from that assumption, right? Mm. There is no sort of normative, but also like honestly, economic reason to not pursue alternatives to detention, other than that, you know, these uh, corporations make 
a lot of money and then leverage that influence to continue to to buy out those contracts and you know uh fear fear of immigrants racist stereotyping fear of the the outsiders or the others but alternative to detentions if we're talking about like the cost to the government alternative to detention programs are way cheaper so much cheaper um so for instance you know like uh currently um, ICE receives $184.4 million to oversee alternatives to detention. They monitor 82,000 people a day. So literally less than a tenth of the cost of the budget for detention beds for more people per day, right? So if you're talking cost effectiveness, alternatives to detention are not only more humane, but also just like much more economically efficient. And I think that that's really important because it also then helps us realize, right, that this is, this is a choice. Governments are making a choice about how they want to crack down on people. And it doesn't have to be this way. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a brilliant point. And let's hope that people can continue to come up with alternatives that are not only more humane, but you know, perhaps more economically feasible and perhaps more importantly, politically palatable for voters, because I think that is part of the reason why the incentives seem so skewed at the moment is because we haven't done a good job presenting this issue in a way that doesn't lead to doom and gloom narratives. And I think it also comes down to the fact that uh, so many people, uh, particularly, you know, folks who are concerned about their economic position, um, really see immigrants as an economic threat. Uh, and I think that that's like really important to pay attention to when in fact, like there's there's real, a lot of research to suggest that the detention and deportation machine uh, actually like collectively drives wages down because um, it means, you know, that undocumented immigrants have to, who, who want to work, who have to work to earn a living um, will work for a lot less because they're worried that their employer will report them to ICE and put them in a detention center. Um, and so then suddenly you've got, you know, if you've got someone who will do the job for less, then you don't have to pay, you know, minimum wage, you don't have to pay fair labor standards. And so it really depresses like the wage system actually as a whole. So if we're talking about even just like a healthy functioning um, wage work system, if we accept that premise, um, it doesn't make a lot like for, for your average worker having immigrants around to do work that are compensated fairly would actually probably help them as well in the long run. I mean, you're speaking of people working for less than minimum wage. What about people who are working for $1? Uh, I would imagine yeah, exactly. that in the areas where prisons are using these systems, the minimum wage has been quite mightily depressed. But uh, exactly. we yeah. can research that in another paper. So yeah, one final thing, would you, for listeners who are interested in maybe contributing or learning more about this, where would you point them other than the two organizations you've named? Yeah. Um, so there are um, so many amazing organizations that I owe really a tremendous debt to just in terms of learning about these, these projects. So definitely La Resistencia, the Global Detention uh, Watch. Uh, in the city of Denver, I was lucky enough to work with an organization called Sanctuary for All um, that is devoted to um, trying to shut down the Aurora uh, ICE Detention Processing Center. Um, I think that if you're interested in information, the University of Washington's Center for Human Rights has a number of really important publications about how the detention uh, machine works. Um, I would also direct folks to uh, look at um, the work of the Immigrant Civil Rights uh, Law Project based out of Nashville, um, which has been responsible for conducting a lot of these forced labor litigation challenges, as well as the, the folks who are involved in kind of the daily, everyday organizing at, uh, at the border. So there are a number of organizations. No Mas Muertes is a great organization that's devoted to uh, providing aid to folks who are, have crossed the border recently and may be in need of employment or anything like that. So uh, those would be the, the first places I would look. Um, there are also local organizations almost everywhere that are uh, organized around specific detention centers. Great. Well, thanks so much for having us. This has been, you know, depressing, but enlightening at the same time. Uh, thanks for having me, Morgan. It was really fun. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
you might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.